Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Intercooler is the multi-award winning ad-free online car magazine. We publish the best stories written by what we think is the finest team of automotive writers working anywhere today. Visit the-intercooler.com to start your 30-day free trial. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Intercooler Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Um, and welcome to episode 200 of the Intercooler Podcast. A big milestone, Andrew. I feel like we need fanfare, maybe trumpets. Does this mean we've been doing this for nearly four years? Four years. Amazing. Blimey. Who would have thought it? Now, for episode 200... Yeah. We needed a very special guest. Yes. And I am delighted to say that James May joins us in the studio. Hello, James. Hello. I'm sorry you couldn't find a really special guest. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. I wasn't going to say that. Well, thank you ever so much for doing this, James. That's quite okay. I, I'm, I, I'm thrilled to have you here, really. Thank you. Um, clearly, you need no introduction from me. If I was to do an introduction, I see there are two ways that I could do it, right? First, welcome James May, car journalist former Top Gear host, now Grand Tour presenter, or the second option, hello James May, publican, distiller of gin, yes, travel show presenter, YouTuber. Mm, occasionally. Do you have a preference between those two? Well, the second one sounded a bit more funky. It was a bit I more, thought, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no, no mention of cars either. No so. mention of cars, <laughs> no. Don't ask me anything difficult about cars. Well, that's what we're it's, here for. It's been too long. Um... <laughs> James, we don't know each other well, but you know Andrew very well. You two go I'm way back. I'm afraid so, yeah. So th well over 30 years. Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to remember. I think so. James and I ended up at Autocar magazine. I was going to say the late 1980s, but it's probably 1990 or so before you got there, wasn't it? Yes, I was 1990 to 1992, almost exactly. Well, it was two years and one month. So... What, because like I mean, I know that you were on a magazine called The Engineer before that. Yes. 
did you always want to pursue did you always want to be a journalist were you did you always want to be involved with cars what brought you to um, our door none of those things no. actually I, I didn't really i was an extremely unambitious young man and remain an extremely unambitious old man <laughs> and um the only reason i ended up at autocar i mean i did like cars and i read car magazines a lot as a as a youth as but a, not autocar i'm guessing no i did used to read autocar okay. i used to read car and autocar or autocar and motor Yes. Um, and I did a series of, so post-university, I did a series of really fairly mundane jobs, worked in a hospital, worked in a shop. I worked in a Volvo dealership briefly. I was fired from everything. Um, and I worked for the civil service. And one of the things I did in the civil service was I was asked to put together a, a, a sort of brochure thing, a booklet for schools. Um, and in, I didn't know anything about doing that, but I sort of had to work it out as I went along. And I spoke to the typesetter. I mean, it was old-fashioned typesetting then. It was pre-desktop stuff. Yeah. So I learned a bit about things like subbing marks. Yes. And I, I learned the language of typesetting and, you know, paragraphs and so on and how to drop illustrations in. And as a result of the experience of doing that, I applied for a job in Monday's Guardian, which is when the sort of media jobs used to be advertised. The Media Guardian. The Media Guardian. Yeah, yeah. On the Engineer magazine. Now, I had, uh, as a sub, um, the only thing I knew about the Engineer magazine was that my dad used to get it because he worked in the steel industry. And I had no qualification for it, but I sent in an application. And after a while, I rang up and said, you know, have you had my application? Because normally a rejection would come back within days, but no, I hadn't heard anything yeah. either way. And the editor, a man called John Pullen, to whom I owe, owe a great deal, yes. actually, um, he, he brought me in for an interview because I was pestering them. Uh, and I sat and chatted with him for a bit. And I admitted that I didn't really know what I was doing, but that I had produced one booklet for the civil service. And he gave me the job of sub-editor on The Engineer. And I, I mean, I learned later, or I worked out later from, from learning about him, that he hated interviewing people and he hated the sort of business side of magazines he liked writing things and putting a magazine together yeah and i think he just met me and thought well this bloke seems okay yeah and if i give him the job i won't have to interview anybody else yeah and i honestly think that's why i got it and, and, and how many sort of how big was the editorial team at, at, at the engineer i'm guessing not huge even it then. wasn't matter it was probably about 10 or 12 oh, people okay. okay the sub subs desk had three people on it okay um, and you were A-sub, you weren't chief-sub. Oh, God, no. no. No, I was A-sub. I had no idea what I was doing, and I struggled <laughs> like hell. But I eventually got into it a bit, and then uh, then I saw the job at Autocar advertised, also, I think, in in uh, Monday's Media Guardian. That's where it was. That's where the advert I replied to was, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. So that, that, that was the only source of jobs in those days. And I applied, and uh, I was given an interview, and I got that. And... Then oh. we get to where you were in the story in 1990. So, but, but what but what made you leave the engineer and go to Autocar? Was there something about cars? You know, what, what did you feel? I think you had a Triumph Herald at the time, didn't you? Vitesse. It was a Vitesse. I'm uh, so yeah, sorry. Six cylinders, yes. Six cylinders. Um, yes, I did. Well, it was partly cars. I mean, it's, it's, it's very hazy now. But to be honest, I think part of it may have been that it was much closer because I lived in Chiswick at the time, yeah. and the engineer was in Woolwich, right. which was a hell of a commute, especially yeah. when you're in your 20s and impatient and very bored, yes. sitting on trains and things. 
Um, and if I if I came to work at Autocar, it was down in Teddington, yeah, stress free Teddington, as it was described <laughs> in the ad. Um, and you also got a car, yeah, it said, which I, which was unthinkable. So I think that that's probably what inspired me, rather than a particular ambition or or a vision of a direction of a career or anything like that. So we, James, we often often. Very often hear about you getting fired from Autocar. Yes. Should we? Let's not do that. Should we? Should we not ask about that? Oh, no, don't we? ask about that. Well, <laughs> I mean, you can, but I've told the story many times, and it's. I mean, it's a lot. It's thirty years ago. Yes. And people still ask me about it. But I. Okay. Well, maybe we have to revisit that briefly. But I want to hear more about your time at Autocar. So you're you're a sub editor there. Does, I was that, the does that mean you're not herring around Europe in V12 supercars? No, no, I never did any of this lot. I'm, yeah. I'm pointing at Andrew. The road Frank testers. They did all that stuff. We used to sit in the office and we used to stay very late at night putting mm. their rubbish together and trying to make it fit on the page and yeah. writing headlines for me yeah. and waiting for it to come back from the typesetter on the fax machine. These Ooh. are all mysterious words to anybody listening under the age of about 30. Um, we used to work very long hours. We used to invent lots of silly games. You'll remember some of them, Frankel, from <laughs> the Bulldog Challenge. And so uh, can, can, can we not? <laughs> Maybe the Bulldog Challenge will be for... Another yes, time. that's a secret. Yes. Um, you, you had to be there and you had to be a member. But, you, yeah, we used to have to sit around for a long time waiting for these proofs to come back and then there'd be a flurry of mad activity, a bit like a war, you know, and then they'd be sitting around for an hour or two again. So we used to invent these games. But I was always rather in awe of you lot. I'm, I'm looking at you again, Frankel, because <laughs> you did. You had all these cars to drive and you kept disappearing abroad Yeah. and then coming back with very obvious hangovers yeah, um, <laughs> yeah and then very familiar. And then these cars would turn up, and I remember, I mean, I had my Honda to drive. Your Accord? My Accord, yes. Yeah. You had a Colt as well, or did somebody else have a Colt? No, uh, the Colt. Who had that? Who's was Peter Tomlin or something like it that. It might have been Peter Tomlin, yeah. Um, I had the Accord, and then later the first Prelude with the rear-wheel steering. 2.2? Yes, exactly, oh, sir, yes. Yes. Um, but you lot, I remember once the Ferrari, well, it wasn't a Testarossa, it must have been a 512 by then. If I it would have been a 512 TR, yes. Yes, and you took me out for a spin in it. Um, not literally, I hope. No, not literally. It was up and down the M4, I think, um, or maybe, no, the M3 it would have been. Yeah. But I remember thinking, wow, that's amazing, because this is like a film star, yuppie icon car of the time. And I was also impressed that it had a pretty good ride. Yes, they did. Yeah. They really did. I mean, yeah, not like nice. modern ones at all. No, they, yeah. were, they, they, they were great long-distance cars. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so did you get to have fun during no. your time at Autocar? Well, it we, does we, sound like you got a bit <laughs> bored. We did nick you, okay? I mean, I can because I can remember I can remember yeah, cocking about on North Yorkshire Moors with you. So, so, did, I did. so you weren't entirely no, that's a, office you're, bat. You're quite right. We were occasionally allowed out as a treat. And I did go <laughs> with you. The first car launch I ever went to, which was, can you remember? It was in Belgium. Were you in a Nissan Micra? I was. Yes. yes. I got poisoned on the ferry on the way home. You did. Yeah. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> so, oh, God, we sound old, don't we? Yeah, but we took um, a load of cars, didn't we? We took a load of little shitboxes. Yes, and I can't remember what car was actually being... Was it the Micra that was being yes, launched? The Micra was yes. being launched. And so we went over there in a 106 or something like that. Yes, and something else. Something else, yeah. Something else small and tinny. And it was great fun. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. These these guys have got the, the, the right yeah. side of this job, and I'm on the wrong way. Because I was the sub, then I had to be the production editor, and I, you know that was that was admin basically. The thing I hate most in the world, although it's quite exciting putting magazines together and making it happen, yeah. it's quite satisfying. 
But so, it wasn't. There weren't any Porsches involved. No. So if if people want the grubby details of how you did get fired from that auto car job, Wikipedia. Go and look at Wikipedia. It but is all yes. it, it sort of says that you you were getting a bit bored doing what you were doing to to have made up what you did. Yeah, I can't remember exactly what tumult of emotions or whatever sure. were running through me at the time, but yeah, something must have. I must have been in some way bored or dissatisfied. Mm. Mm. Were you cross to have been let go, or did it seem fair enough? Um, I was quite cross at having to walk home. The great, <laughs> the great advantage of moving to Autocar was that you got a car, but of course they took that off me straight away, yeah. and I had to walk mm. from... Were you escorted from the building that very day? I can't remember. I don't think I was... I, I, I wasn't granted the dignity of an escort. I was simply told to bugger <laughs> off you know, by a quite apoplectic... Well, you know who I mean. I know exactly like who you mean. The chairman or yeah. whatever he was. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was the end of that, really. And then mm. I did a bit of... Can I just say, uh, we're not going to go into it, but so far as I'm aware, um, the appalling crime you committed, we received not a single complaint of any kind from anyone. No. And an awful lot of people who were highly amused and thought it was all rather clever. I mean, and actually... It did the magazine an enormous amount of good because it gave it a bit of texture and a bit of character. And... Um, yeah, and that's all the thanks you got. Yeah, well, and also I'd like to say for the record, and I can't quite remember if you were one of these, but I quite, was. Yeah, you were absolutely. Okay. I'm, I'm completely <laughs> complicit in your downfall. Yeah, so um, it wasn't just you. No, no. It, well, I, I sort of masterminded it from my sad little corner of the office. But in order for the acrostic, which you will see, listeners, if you look at it on on Wikipedia, in order for it to work. Each of the road tests, there were four per spread. This was the road test yearbook. It had to begin with a particular letter, and, yes. and not one of them could be changed because otherwise the whole thing would be ruined. So sometimes, if I had to make, you know, I would I would have to rewrite the submissions from the road testers. They they do a pricey of the car uh, that they tested. I remember you issuing us with letters. Yes, exactly. I had a chart, <laughs> yes. and it had your names on. This is your test of the new Volkswagen Golf. It has to begin with an L. Yes, and what, case, I don't care what the word is as long as it begins with an L. Yeah, and occasionally there would be something like a K, and yeah. it would be quite difficult. <laughs> and you'd have to write something like knowing what we know. <laughs> but everybody stuck to it, and then I also sort of had to have a quiet word with the subs desk where I had been previously yes. to make sure that they didn't think that's a bit of a clumsy first sentence, which some mm. of them always were. Can you obviously. imagine if <laughs> late one night somebody had just thought, "Well, I'll just change that drop cap and something else." Yeah, that the whole. Yeah. So, so there were a huge number of us who were instrumental in virtually all of you, virtually <laughs> all of us, and you were the only person who got. Yeah, I'd like to say well, I still feel bad about that. but I wouldn't worry. I mean, well, it wasn't the end of a motoring journalism career, was it? No, but did you think then when, you know, as you, as, as you took that long, lonely walk, did you think to yourself, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder what I can do next. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Because um, I didn't have any money or anything. You know, I, didn't, I hadn't saved anything up or anything responsible like that. But I did. I mean, in some ways, it was, a, uh, it was quite a significant moment in my trajectory I don't want to big it up, but I went home and I thought, right, I can do some freelance stuff. And I got a bit of freelance subbing work, which is what I could do. Um, and I tried writing a few things. Now, I'd never really done writing, and I wasn't very good at it at school, mainly because I couldn't really hold my pen properly. So I found writing very uncomfortable. So I tended to prefer to do things like music and metal work, you know, essentially practical things. Um, but I had to go at writing a few things. I had my typewriter, which yeah. I'd had at university. I got a couple of things published in things like um, Auto Express, 
Um, and then I went to work for Complete Car on the launch because they wanted someone who understood production and, and desktop publishing, which we'd moved into by the time I got thrown out of Autocar. So I knew a bit about the computer systems and I knew how to sort of assemble pages. So I did that. But that was that for just for the for the for the sort of the, the ramp up phase of the launch of this new product? No, I stayed there for how long was I there? So we're in about nineteen ninety four now. I think I was probably there for the best part of a year. Yeah. And then why did I leave? I can't oh no, I know. So in bored moments when I was at Complete Car, I had a go at writing things, and I wrote some what were actually columns, although I didn't realise they were. They were just ramblings. And I sent them off to um, Gavin Green of Car Magazine fame, who had also just launched Car Week, yes. if you remember that. Yes. Um, and I sent them off, and I said, oh, I'd be interested in doing some stuff. And he... He sent me a letter. No, hang on, let me get this right. Sorry, I'm, I'm being a bit boring now. But I went away on a holiday with someone, a very, very basic sort of camping, cycling holiday. And when I came back, there was a letter from Gavin Green, and it said, you know, we haven't got enough work to offer you. I wouldn't want you to leave your, your full-time job on complete car to come and do things for us because Car Week has got enough contributors, blah, blah, blah. But there was also a message on my answering machine from Gav saying, oh, mate. Oh, ignore the litter. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Come and meet me in the pub. Terrible uh, impersonation of Gavin Greenberg. He's Australian. Yes, um, yes. So I went down to the pub in Richmond and met him, and he sort of strode in and said, do you want a column on Car Magazine? I thought, that's a very strange and that's, thing. And that's a pretty extraordinary thing, because, uh, you know, given Yeah, the, out of nowhere. Really. And, and in Car Magazine, and given that Car Magazine had changed the face of, certainly in the UK, probably around the world, motoring journalism, particularly through its columnists, through the 70s and the 80s and into the 90s, to suddenly go from, you know, being a, being told to leave Autocar for doing an acrostic to being a columnist in Car Magazine. That must have just been... Well, it did seem quite remarkable. And yeah. it was, I mean, that is why Gavin Green is the other person who saved my life. Yes. So it was John pulling at the engineer for giving me a job in the first place, and then Gavin Green for giving me the column, which made, meant I made the step from production to writing. I'm not, I'm, I've never really wanted to ask him, but I don't know why he did that, because all I'd done was sent him three columns that I'd written, and they, I didn't they even realise they were columns. They must have been very, very good, though. I mean, that doesn't they happen without right. them being... <laughs> well, I mean, anybody listening to this, I'm sure most people will, but if you don't know, I mean, he, apart from the fact that he continues to write for the Intercooler to, to these these days, he is one of the... And they call them the Australian Mafia, don't they? Mel Nichols, mm. Steve Cropley and Gavin Green. They were the three consecutive editors of Car Magazine through the 70s and 80s into the 90s who just basically blew everybody else out of the water yeah. um, and created this incredibly compelling car product. And they turned the, 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 the business of writing about cars from one of just, you know, frankly, pretty tedious, straightforward information into proper entertainment. Yes. Uh, and I don't think their contribution could be easily... Um, underestimated. So, um, yeah. And so Gavin... Gavin took this very, very bold and, and I would suggest ill-advised step of giving me a, a small retainer and a monthly column. Now, I, I was incredibly excited by this and he said, do you want to go away and think about it? And I said, no, no, it's okay. I'll, I'll do it. Hmm. Um, then we had a pint and then I went home. Now, for the next three months, I had a column ready because I'd already written three and then we got to month four um, <laughs> and and what, what were you living on in the meantime? 
Oh, I can't. I, I don't know. But you, weren't, you didn't have any other sources of income. I think I must have saved a little bit of pocket money from my bits of freelance subbing that I did yeah. and, and so on. Uh, but I was pretty skinned. Um, and so I, I think I sold a few things as well. And I... You sold me your piano. I, I did. Yeah. Yes. I, have you still got it? Absolutely. Excellent. It's it still never, work? ever gone wrong. Good, good. It's Japanese, you see. Yeah. Um, so we got to month four and I thought, God, I've got to think of something else to say. And I'm going to have to do that again next month as well. Yeah. And it was quite painful. And I still find writing an incredibly painful business, which is why I sort of avoid it if I can. Um, <laughs> but I somehow managed to keep going. And working on Car Magazine was terrific fun because I could now do a bit of your stuff and go on launches and drive interesting or exciting cars and yeah. write about them and you know think up jokes about them. I also used to go and help out with the subbing a bit occasionally when they got snowed under. It being a monthly, they saved all the work up for the last four days <laughs> or whatever. Um, and it, and it, was, it was tremendous. But that all fell apart. Uh, Gav had left by then and another bloke had taken over called Rob and I appeared briefly on old Top Gear in its Pebble Mill days. Gosh, who were the presenters then? Um, well, Clarkson wasn't there because he he was having a the, sort of... With a sort of Quentin's era. Yeah, Quentin, With Tiff, Tiff yeah. Vicky, and a, and a couple of other occasionals. So I did a bit of that, and that really annoyed Robert Carr magazine, so he, he effectively threw me out. But then Top Gear got rid of me as well, so I was unemployed <laughs> again. <laughs> how, how, did, how did that first Top Gear appearance come about? I mean, do you remember? I mean, how... Yeah, they, the, the, the bloke who produced it just rang me up. Really? Well, sorry, no, I've, I've, I've skipped a bit, haven't I? Because I appeared on Driven uh, okay. first. But Driven was sort of neutral because it was a, it was mm. a Channel 4 show and it wasn't associated with anything. The trouble with Top Gear was they were launching a magazine as yeah. well at the yeah. same time as Car Week was coming out. And, you know, it, was, it was a very... It was a very busy time for car magazines then. Um, so when I, so I, I did one season of Driven with uh, Mike Brewer and Jason Barlow, but then they got rid of me, um, <laughs> and Pebble Mill Top Gear offered me some stuff, so I went to do that, but then they got rid of me, but car magazine didn't like that I'd appeared on the TV show that was allied to their biggest rival, which was the new Top Gear magazine, so I, so I ended up with no work again. So Hank, can we just very quickly, because I mean, it just seems to me to be a bit of a leap from you're, you're a columnist for car and you're doing a bit of subbing when they are short of staff. Was, te was television, is that just another thing you kind of stumbled your way into? It wasn't part of any sort of worked out strategic no there was there was no plan and there still isn't yeah there's yeah. just I, I didn't but have nevertheless you must have thought i mean did you go for an audition did you were you aware i mean how did the whole tv thing come about um for driven i okay the reason i was asked in for an audition was because the 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 guy um who, who had been charged with putting it together the director essentially he, he was a big car magazine fan, and he liked my column, ah, okay. fortunately. So he said, do you want to come and have a go at telly? So I went, and uh, they must have thought I was okay because yeah. they put me on it with with Mike and Jason. Um, and then, obviously, I got fired from that, and then I I just went on to the, the old Pebble Mill Top Gear because they'd seen me on Driven, I suppose, and thought I was okay. But then that had a bit of a big shake-up and a change of leadership, and they got rid of me and various other people as well. 
And then when I returned to Top Gear, which wasn't for you know several more years, I sort of started again and went and did a, an audition. So talking on camera, and actually, and actually was rejected because I wasn't no. on originally. No, had no, because Jason Jason yeah. Dawes did the first no. series, didn't he? So the talk, presenting telly, talking on camera is a very very difficult thing to do. No, it's easy. It's just <laughs> speaking, which is what we all do anyway. Well, but th- th- there you go. It must have come naturally to you, because for the rest of us, well, you're doing it now. Yeah, terribly. No. And certainly not on human. And certainly not on Top Gear. But so you you never found it a daunting, challenging thing to do. Yeah, it is. It is. It is quite daunting, especially to mm. begin with, because sure. you you come with a lot of sort of preconceptions about how one is supposed to do television. Yeah. And especially, we were still in an era then, I think. So we're going back, you know, twenty plus years. We were in an era where. People on television had a person on television sort of demeanour and sound to yes, them. Yes, there was a the voice, wasn't there? There was the voice. There was the, the there were gestures and there were ways you stood. And yes, that has largely disappeared <laughs> yes. and, and for the better. So yes. television is much more much more real, much more natural now. And I've had lots of sort of healthy debates with people, including people quite close to me, about the difference between a TV presenter. That is a person who professionally presents things Mm. and does it on TV and could present anything within reason. And people, and I'm not one of those because I'm just not good enough at it, but people who are on the TV because they are enthused about something and can share that, Mm. they can put it across and, and... help people have the same experience vicariously to some extent. Yeah, some people are natural professional broadcasters, aren't they? Maybe yeah. Richard Hammond is one of those. Well, Hammond is brilliant at yeah. it. I mean, yes. he's, he's, a, he's a machine. I mean, that's his background in radio as well, mm. helped with that. Yeah, sure. Um, I could never really do that. Um, but I I think I, I, would, I was just about good enough at it to share my enthusiasm. Mm. But, you, but the point being is whatever it was, be it, you know, cars or aircraft or food or travel, it would have to be something that you were vested in yourself. It had to be something that was interesting. Oh, God, yes, without question. I mean, people have approached me to do other things over the years, and if it's not something that, no matter how tempting it seems or how exciting it seems as a, as a venture, if it's yeah. not something that really honestly floats my boat, I just say no because I know it won't make good telly. Yeah. Uh, it, it possibly would do if Hammond did it because he can turn on the mm. man on the telly thing, but I can't really do that. Yeah. And I think you can spot a mile off if someone like me is as we say phoning it in mm. yeah so, so, I, so i just do stuff i like well there that's you go the, that's a great privilege actually isn't it, it is oh, it's unbelievable yeah. yeah so you did audition for the first series of studio era top gear yes and Didn't they get, said no they did they said no wow well they got that wrong well um i think they thought i was too much like the other two um, and I suspect if we were making, if, if we started again now with Top Gear and us three turned up, even as the 20 year younger versions of ourselves, we probably wouldn't get anywhere because we'd be considered far too uniformly pale male, stale, mm. you know, white, yeah, middle aged, white, middle aged blokes, yeah. Um, but as it turned out, that's sort of what it needed. Mm. So, well, and goodness me, did it work? We're delighted to be working with Pistonheads, the UK's number one performance and premium used car marketplace, now with a new online auction platform to complement the already bustling classifieds. 
More and more people are choosing to buy and sell their cars by online auction. Pistonhead's comprehensive auction listings are curated by professionals with in-depth descriptions and stacks of photographs. Bidders can ask sellers questions online and arrange viewings before bidding with confidence, thanks to the transparent listings. If you're looking to buy or you're just browsing, visit pistonheads.com forward slash buy forward slash auctions or click the link in the description to see what's live on the platform right now and what's sold recently. For sellers, you'll be reaching the largest audience of performance car buyers in the UK with Pistonheads. It's safe and hassle-free, and with a realistic reserve, you can be confident your car will have a new owner by a fixed date. No more dealing with scammers or tyre kickers. If you're thinking of selling your car on Pistonheads auction platform, visit pistonheads.com forward slash sell forward slash auctions or click the link in the description and remember to tell them the intercooler sent you. And what's the, you know, obviously, you know, a persona was created around you. Was that a sort of conscious thing? Do they think, well, we need to portray James in a certain way? Um, Captain Slow. Exactly. Well, I do, I do, I do drive quite moderately, mm. really, compared with the other two, because I've never been a massive fan of, of just going fast for the sake of it. I was very interested in the, in the podcast you did a few episodes about where you were talking about the great myth of the autobahn. Yeah. Because I was actually listening to that in the car uh, on the A303, and I was sort of slapping my thigh in the dashboard, not not because it was about Germany, <laughs> um, <laughs> and the dashboard, and saying, "No, you're dead right. You're dead right." Because I wrote this thing when we had our our website a few years ago. That in reality, mm. all cars go at exactly the same speed. Correct. Of course they do, because the speed is dictated by the infrastructure, not the car. Now, having a fast and a powerful car is is very enriching. Um, in short bursts, and it's a very satisfying thing, and it's rather special. But it doesn't get you anywhere quicker. No. The idea that you buy no. a fast car and but get ultimately, it's, it's also, if we're being briefly sort of honest about it, for all those moments you talk about, there are at least as many moments of frustration. Yeah, at least because all you're doing is reducing the period of time before you catch the next car yeah. and get held up again. The best example of this, the best demonstration, is to ride a bicycle through London because it teaches you that the definition of speed, the true definition, is the relationship between distance and time. It's not in the instant, it's overall. Yeah. And you will, exactly as you say, difference between a normal car and a, and a supercar, you will catch up with everybody who's passed you whilst they wait for an obstruction or a red light, you know, and you can just trundle past them. And, and it will be as fast as anything across London. Even Google Maps, this is my cycling evangelist moment, <laughs> even Google Maps now acknowledges when you enter a route that the bicycle time is as good, if not better, than the car So you time. might sometimes get a quicker est estimated time uh, of quite, ride on, quite a, lot of on the a time, bicycle. Yeah. I, I mean, over a distance of, say, six to ten miles. Yeah through the middle of London. Yeah. And, and, and you say this as a man with several fast cars at home. We'll come to those later, but... Yeah, I do. I've got... Yes, I have some thoughts on those, but I, <laughs> okay, I can save good. them, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, do. Um, so, briefly, on a personal note, studio-era Top Gear was a big deal to me. I was yes. 15 or 16 when it first came out. Oh, um, dear. Were we a formative influence on I'm, I'm afraid it's your fault that I'm sat here. Oh, sorry about that. No, it really is. It's a... It changed my life, and it made me think that I wanted to write about cars. I thought maybe I'd be a Top Gear presenter one day. I haven't managed that. But I do get to sit here and do this. 
But yeah. we've got a former Top Gear presenter in the studio, so not too far off. Well, this is the most dignified form of, of everything, actually, do, doing what is essentially radio. I know yes. it's a podcast, but it's the same yeah. idea. This is about the words. And I've I've done a little bit of radio, and I do find it very satisfying because... Well, partly because they often can't shut you up, which is quite nice, mm. but also because it is only about the words. All the pictures, all sure. the imagery comes from words, and you're not, you don't have to accommodate these pesky pictures mm. all the time. The you art simply, department. Yes. Yes. So you'll have been asked this a thousand times, but it's, it's still an interesting question. Why was Top Gear during that era so successful? I don't know. Uh, people do ask the chemistry that, that presumably at the heart well, of there, it is. There is a chemistry. There's, there's a. There. I think one of the interesting things about about Top Gear is that it's it's three presenters and three is difficult socially. I mean, we know this from the old adage that two is company yeah. and three is crowd, and it is very, very true. And on TV, three people is is a slightly awkward number. So there's there's a constant imbalance. We do annoy each other. We we are. I always say that if we were all at school at the same time and at the same age, which we're not, but if we'd all been in the same mm. year, we'd have been in very different gangs. I've heard you say this, yeah. yeah. We wouldn't be in the same gang. Mm. And that's what makes it work. It's not. I mean, I often exaggerate it and say we are creatively fueled by our mutual loathing. <laughs> As, you know, it's not quite that. But, but there's a certain... We needle each other, mm. and, it, and it's almost a form of distrust mm. of, of the others or, or a... A slight fear that the other person might be doing better than you or being cleverer need, than you. It or, needs a bit of tension, doesn't it? Definitely. And I, I think when people have said to me, um, you know, oh, we, we want to do a show about, you know, it'll be about something else like cooking or art or something. And we're thinking of having three presenters and we want to sort of get, do it a bit like you did on Top Gear in the Grand Tour. What is the secret? And I always say to them, <laughs> you've got to find three people who essentially don't really like each other. <laughs> Otherwise but, it won't work. But there is there is something else. And, I've all, and, I, and I have, you know, often thought about this and I think that you actually see it most clearly in the top gear that happened after the three of you left I think what I think the fact that you have your that, that you had differences and you weren't all just cardboard cutouts was great but what did unite you all was you had authority you knew what you were talking about I and I, and I, well and, and I think the reason that you know that Chris Harris was last man standing on the top gear that came after your departure is exactly that. He was actually the only person on there who really, really knew. I agree with you time. 100% on that. And I think Chris Harris and you and various other people I could name that are, are greater authorities than me on cars. But the thing we used to do on, on top gear and now on the ground tour, even after it evolved to the point where it became a sort of cross between a pantomime and a circus and a sitcom... <laughs> and all those other things, and was really car-themed rather than a car show, yeah. we would still occasionally allow or not be able to help ourselves showing that actually we did love the subject and we did know what we were talking about. Well, that's mm. exactly it. We, we suppressed it and mm. we sort of brushed it aside and were a bit embarrassed about it even, but actually it was there. And, and, and everybody knew it was there. Yeah. And that's what gave you the credibility. Mm. Do you buy into this idea that it, it actually, it wasn't a car show at all, it was a sitcom about three middle-aged men living together in a, con, in a car-related context and that's what was actually got people who were not interested in cars at all um, to watch it? To some extent, but I, I don't think it's as simple as that. Like, there are people in the world who think that we live in a big house together with some cars parked <laughs> out the front and, you know, the stiggies in a shed or whatever. But, 
it, it, it's not it, it's a bit more subtle than that I mean it is true that I think quite a few people watched us because they just either pitied us or found us amusing in some way or liked the, the, the you know the daftness of I, of the ideas that they were things that other people would like to be able to do if they had the time and the budget to do them so we were we were doing it so you didn't have to etc <laughs> um, but it's 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 a more complicated and it's a very fragile thing the, the the sort of relationship that makes a program like Top Gear and the Grand Tour work and it's it's I can't really articulate it and I don't know if anybody can otherwise you'd be able to reproduce it it goes back to the idea of you know, reducing things, this is what sort of marketing and analytical people do, business analysts, I mean, is, you know, they reduce successful enterprises or successful names into a series of bullet points, as if you could then use those and yeah. reverse engineer them to create yeah, it doesn't work like that. BMW or Top Gear or Radio yeah. 3 or whatever. No, it doesn't work like so, that. So, so there is a certain element of, what's the word? I mean, I suppose people do call it chemistry, don't they? But there is a certain stardust if you like which just happened to come together which nobody could have manufactured nobody could have predicted and it just happened to work yes although i would say um after the original the old pebble mill top gear from which i was fired uh, <laughs> fell apart and clarkson and wilman started working up the new idea for it um, which did sort of incorporate a few things we'd done on driven as well because we were a little bit innovative with our three header tests and our test track and things, but when they when they did that and then they did the auditions, I think actually, I think Clarkson, to his credit, knows or knew that it would need that 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 special relationship between the three people. Yeah, and he was quite adamant about the sort of people he wanted to work with. And I, although I was rejected the first time round, I think secretly he. I don't think he's ever admitted this to me, but he really quite wanted me to be there because he could see that I was very different from him, yeah. whilst in some ways mm. being very similar. Mm. And he, he got that. So when, when, you know, when Jason decided he didn't want to carry on, he went back and he said, right, now we have to try James because I think that would work. And he was right. And, and you know, me and Clarkson do wind each other up appallingly, but that's what you need for TV. Yeah. You can't, mm. It can't be everybody meets up Busy and has mates. a big man hug you know <laughs> nobody wants to see that it's appalling <laughs> well there's a new idea for a tv show um do you think the other sort of ingredient here the other insight is that okay people not many people have a geeky interest in cars the way that we do but because they are everywhere and most people drive and have to think about the cars that they buy they are just about interesting enough to a general audience to underpin a sort of mainstream entertainment show yes there's a bit of of all of that, I think cars are something upon which a great many people, probably the vast majority of people, even if they're not technically interested in cars, have a view of yeah. some sort because, you know, they impinge on everybody's lives. Of course they do. If you did the same thing with, say, motorcycles or boats or, mm. or light aircraft, people don't relate to them, but people relate to cars. The other thing is, I think enthusiasm is infectious and very watchable or listenable sure um and that's not just true of cars i mean i remember when i you know when i did the wine series with oz clark i didn't really know anything about wine and i always used to refer to oz as a wine ponce because he went on about it but the thing is he knows so much and is so excitable about it even about a bottle of bad wine he's still excited because that's increasing his knowledge mm. and his experience you are bowled along by it because enthusiasts and experts are interesting. And sometimes, I mean, I listen to you two. I mean, sometimes you can be, I mean, not wishing to be rude, but 
pretty fucking dull about some aspects of cars, <laughs> but I'm but I'm riveted by it because Good. because it's a subject I like, and, yes. it, and, it, and it sort of reawakens it in me. I think, oh yes, I am interested in this, and here's some people who have who have picked over a bit that I didn't mm. know, mm. and it and it's and it's great, you know, it's fantastic. And I, I I think that people like to see that. There's another question I've always wanted to ask you or Hammond or Clarkson <clears throat> relating to Top Gear, particularly when it was really controversial and you were in the papers every other day. Um, it was always quite clear to me that the three of you were playing characters or at least twisted versions of yourselves. Yes. But I don't think the press, I don't think the general public understood that or gave you that little bit of leeway. Some, I think some people understand it, but you're right. The, the, the characters are... They're not invented. Mm. They are, you know, if you if you go to a cartoonist in Leicester Square, um, oh, yeah. I've been to a few of those, and I was actually draw, drawn by Gerald Scarf once because I was in wow. conversation with him about something, and he said, uh, and he said, I'll draw you very quickly. He just took out a sharpie and he drew it in a, in about fifteen twenty seconds and he showed it to me, and I said, I can see exactly what you've done. This is why you're good at this. You've looked at me. We've never met before. You've known me for about a minute, and you've immediately picked on my weaknesses, <laughs> my, my slightly narrow mouth and my, my slightly weak jaw and my slightly flouncy sort of hair quiff thing, and you've distorted those and pretty much ignored all the other perfectly reasonable bits about me, and now you've got this caricature of me, and it's actually quite cruel in mm. a way. Mm. And, the, and the TV does the same thing, or certainly our TV did. All, all the aspects of us... That are supposedly our core characters are real aspects of mm, us. Yeah, you know, Jeremy is slightly obnoxious. I am, I am quite particular. Hammond is flighty, mm. um, but they're only actually small bits of us. But they're the useful mm. bits mm. for the purposes of TV. So they are the bits that Gerald Scarf mm. exaggerates in in his and, caricatures. Uh, and was that a conscious effort to bring out those aspects of your characters or did it just sort of happen over time because it was clear that it was working and people thought, well, we just need to make even more of that so it works even better? I think probably the latter. I think it was... You have to be very careful doing this sort of thing that it doesn't just become a trope and it's not just an excuse for laziness, Yeah, obviously. But it, but it did work. I, I don't think it became apparent immediately. If you look at... And I haven't done this recently because I find it too tragic but if you look at our very early efforts together on on top gear it, it those character roles aren't so apparent absolutely and and we actually and we also seem like little boys and and it actually looks very old-fashioned now mm -hmm. i mean it's over, it's over 20 but years you also, ago you, so. you look like three presenters of a television program you don't look like three people who've come together to create between you this other being and, and and I've always thought it was very interesting because most you know, you're certainly very old Top Gear it was just individual presenters and the relationships between the people themselves wasn't irrelevant you weren't aware of it no that's the, the magazine format as it's yeah. often known whereas the relationship between you and Clarkson and Hammond became Top Gear that became the thing I mean it became more core to, I think, the success and the popularity of that series than anything you were driving, anything that was actually the subject of what you, whatever it was you were talking about. Yes, possibly. And I think, I mean, you have to remember, well, you, you probably wouldn't know this, but in the very early days of Top Gear, we thought we wouldn't do things like three-header um, items. And we wouldn't, actually, we thought we wouldn't do any foreign travel, believe it or not. Wow. We thought mm. we'd do it all at home when cars were launched 
in the UK. And is that because that's what you thought was best or the budget wasn't there to do it the way you wanted to do it? Or? Well, that, that was thought before I got there. I think it was, it was thought that that would be more real. Yeah. Um, and one of, the, one of the things that changed that, I think, uh, it's, it was an idea of mine that I stole from myself and it wasn't entirely original anyway because I'd partly been inspired by something in a, in a motorcycle magazine. But when I was at Car Magazine, I proposed this thing called the Crap Car Cup, which is where we teamed up into pairs of journalists and you had a budget for a car. And it was something like 300 quid. Yeah. And then a series of tests, so like a handling test, an economy mm. run, and a, a Milbrook-type performance thing, uh, and then a reliability run, you know, a long round journey and things. It sounds very Top Gearish. Well, I took that to Top Gear and mm. I said, why could we do a TV version of this where we each buy a car and then there's a point system? And that... You know, after yeah. a lot of discussion, that turned into the original cheap car challenge, and then we introduced things like the gold envelope and mm. and so on, and then and then that turned into doing the same thing abroad, and it just and it it, sort of spread it, from there. But that that was the germ of the idea that actually underpins, you know, what you're doing on the Grand Tour today. Yes, except on the Grand Tour, we've now completely abandoned any pretense of testing new cars or commentating on the state of the car industry or anything like that. We simply find somewhere in the world to go and ask about. Yes, but, but nevertheless, that, that, that fundamental core idea of the presenters each getting uh, a somewhat dilapidated, clapped-out car and yes. putting it through a series of tests, I don't imagine that's what you intended it to grow into, but that, uh, that idea has underpinned everything well, that, that, that has been done both on Top Gear while you were there and the Grand Tour since then. Yes, I mean, I, don't, I thought it was a one-off idea when I suggested it. And as I say, I had done it already on Car Magazine some years earlier, and I borrowed some aspects of it from Performance, Bike, uh, Performance Bikes magazine, so I can't take credit for it. And I, I don't want to take credit for everything that happened on the three-header things of Top Gear, but I think that was the point at which we realised there was something in it with putting the three of us together to yes. do things so that we could squabble. Yeah, and argue, and then it, you know, then it just went from there. And then we, you know, we did. It was all great fun. We used to do absurd things like the fifteen hundred pound coupes that aren't Porsches challenge, and we actually <laughs> used to write that across the scoreboard, you know, so that it was immensely white. Then we had those stupid scoring systems, so you could end up with like a pinball score but minus, yeah, because you'd done something wrong. And it, and it was just, it was just farcical, but it was, it was good fun. And there were a couple of. Useful lessons like the ten. One of the, I still think one of the best things we ever did, or certainly one of the ones I really enjoyed the most, was the ten thousand pound supercars, which was you yeah. know, that old car magazine idea that over oh, ten thousand pounds. I'm going back quite a few years. Ten thousand pounds, you can buy this um, that, uh, Ford Fiesta or a yes. Maserati Merak. Yes, or a Ferrari three hundred eight Dino, or, or a Lamborghini Uraco, or something. Yes, it? none of which you could get for ten thousand pounds now, even if they were scrappers. But, no, um, which the ones you got pretty much were not far off. Well, they yeah. certainly were by the end of it. Yeah, <laughs> um, to prove the point that it's not quite that simple, yeah. and indeed we were right. I mean, I think we we did prove the point quite well. Well, Jeremy especially because his freshly rebuilt Maserati, mm. but quite a lot of it ended up on the windscreen of my Lamborghini, and not many people can say that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Top Gear, that era, became enormous. There's this often quoted thing about it being the most watched factual TV show in the world or something. Yes, it sounds about right, doesn't like it? Yeah. Was there a moment when you thought, this is getting somewhere now, we've got some momentum? Or did it just sort of explode around you without you realising? I, I, well, I can't really speak for the other two, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if they said something similar. I don't think we were really... Well, we were aware of it. Mm. Um, 
But it wasn't, we didn't really pursue it. We only ever made, certainly in the Top Gear days, a programme for BBC Two. Yeah. You know, which in a sense is quite conservative. It's one of the things that made it work, I think, that it was on the BBC and it was a bit like, you know, mm. being naughty at school. <laughs> um, so that's what, we, that's what we concentrated on doing. We never sort of stopped and thought, well, how can we do this in a way that is more global? I think people mm. globally liked it because it was so mm. British and, in a way, slightly up itself, probably. Uh, uh, and did it being on the BBC, I mean, certainly in terms of, you know, some of the language you use, you, you clearly had more freedom on the Grand Tour than you did on Tokyo because it was part of the corporation. There was clearly a certain amount of moderation. Did you ever feel that you were stopped doing from stuff, stopped doing stuff that you wanted to do or you were made to do it in a slightly different way to that, which ideally you would have done? Or, or was the BBC's sort of overall influence and moderating influence, was that, is it, was that a largely positive thing? No, I think it was positive. I, to be honest, I don't... There isn't that much difference between doing it for the BBC and doing it for Amazon. Yeah. Because for the most part, we police ourselves. We're not always very good at it, admittedly. But, you know, a lot of people said, oh, you're going off to Amazon now, you'll be free of restrictions, you can run around and you can swear as much as you like. And we always thought, yeah, but we don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. We only leave swearing in when it's when it's a genuine exclamation. Yeah. You know, because something frightening or very, very surprising has happened. Um, and there's a similar rule, you know, on the BBC and there's the watershed rule and so on and so on. But they, the, the BBC didn't really interfere and Amazon don't really interfere. I think they, they so trust you were, us. So you were left alone to get on and make the programme you wanted to make? Yeah, because we knew, you know, we, we knew we could be a... We knew we could be silly. We knew we could be slightly controversial, but we wouldn't have done anything, you know, to, you know, we wouldn't have done any hate speech. No. Because we knew... No, we didn't want to do that, and, and we don't do it in private, and we wouldn't want to put that on the telly. We're not deliberately trying to push the edge. We're just, we're just being silly. I mean, that's that's all it is. So there is a <clears throat> talking about what you do becoming global. There's an extraordinary moment in the most recent Grand Tour special, which we'll talk about, where you're driving through the capital, I think, of Mauritania. And I don't know if this was faked, but it, it appears that a local well, drives past. Not, no. <laughs> a local drives past and shouts through your window, Richard. Yes. And he <laughs> in Mauritania, and he he got the name wrong, but he recognised you. Yeah, it does happen that they get. I mean, I got mistaken for Richard Hammond in in central London. Yeah. <laughs> Has Richard Hammond ever been mistaken for you? I don't. He's never mentioned it. I mean, I have been mistaken for Clarkson. I mean, we're sort of. I don't want to say I look like him, obviously, but um, we're a similar. You know, we're both white, grey-haired blokes of a certain age. Hammond is, looks very different. Yes. And I was riding a bicycle, and somebody said, "All right, he's Richard Hammond." All right, Richard. And I thought, oh, "No." How can <laughs> so, so he knows who he's looking at. He's just got his name wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I, he can't think I'm no, Hammond. No. No. no he can't. But the, the bits. But back to your original question though about you know were we aware of it becoming a big global thing I don't think we really thought about it but when we did our Middle East special there was a, a strange moment where we were driving through a, a very deserted bit of so we were get, we were heading up for the border with Turkey so we're sort of in the middle of nowhere but on a on a road a very basic road no infrastructure but there was um we stopped at a little it would be if, if it was Britain it would be a burger van Except, of course, it's not. It's the Middle East. So, it, but but it's you know it's, it's a roadside snack mm. thing, and um, the bloke had like a charcoal grill, and he didn't have any electricity as far as I could make out or anything like that. 
But we stopped and we thought, oh, we'll go up there and we'll get a little falafel thing or, you know, some sort of little snack. And I went up to the window on this thing and, and this bloke said, welcome in my country, Mr. Slowly. <laughs> and I'm thinking, how do you know? How do you know I'm Mr. Slowly? But he did. That is extraordinary. And how do, you, how do you sort of feel about this? What, what does that make you? I mean, it would completely do my head. It would fry my mind if something like that. Well, it's, it's quite sort of humbling, really. Yeah, well, to exactly, think. Yes. And, and he was obviously pleased to see us because yeah. he thought, oh, yeah, the other two are here as well. And, oh, yeah. um, and, he, and he was wow. he was chuffed a bit, you know, and gave us something on a stick, which was delicious because <laughs> um, it had been cooked on, cooked on proper charcoal, et cetera. Yes. Um, yeah, it is. It's quite. But I don't really think about it. I don't mm. wake up in the morning and think, oh, my God, mm. what's happened to me? Because well, it happens very slowly, and it's best not to think about it. It would do your head in if you really did stop and think about it, I'm sure. So I did mention Mauritania, <clears throat> which was the location for the most recent Grand Tour special on yes. Amazon Prime. Which I haven't seen. What's that episode called? Sand Job. What, maybe one of your biggest adventures. That's what it felt like to me. It felt like it when we were doing it, yeah. to be honest. Yeah, it's a long way, and... Um, I mean, Mauritania is fascinating, but you couldn't honestly say there's a lot there. Mm. There's a lot of dust. A lot of sand. A lot of sand. Um, quite a few goats. Yeah. Uh, you, you go through the old village and thing, it's very friendly and very very hospitable, and it's fascinating. But it's, it's not... It's not full of variety, mm. if I can say that lots without of, sounding insulting. It's so. Saharan, isn't it? Lots yeah. and lots of desert. And the, the premise of Sanjob is that you built your own budget off-road sports cars. Yes. We've spoken about off-road sports cars on the podcast a few times. Desert Raiders, or whatever yeah. we were supposed yeah. to call them. So days, lifted up, knobbly tyres, yes. a bit of underbody protection or whatever. All the other things that ruin perfectly good cars. Yes. <laughs> and you, to this extremely harsh, unforgiving terrain, you took a Jaguar F-Type, yes. a Maserati, a Gran Cabrio? Gran Cabrio, yes, that yes. was mine. And an Aston Martin DB9. Now, these are not cars that are known for being as reliable as a Toyota. Uh, you're absolutely right. Yes, and, they are not known for that. And even a Toyota Land Cruiser would have a tough time hacking across the desert in Mauritania. Yeah. How on earth do you keep those cars going? Well, to be honest, we do have some professional mechanics. With well, us sure. <laughs> put things back together. Um, it is. We have surprised ourselves yeah. several times over the years with just how just how well a a mainstream or even a specialist car can cope with quite extreme conditions. Mm. I'm not talking about you know really hot and really cold like the manufacturers test, but things like off roading in my Esprit. Yes, which yes. We did in South America. The, the, on, on that, which was obviously the last big thing that you did on Top Gear, mm. because it all went a bit wrong after that. Um, the Esprit, the Esprit V8, the legendarily unreliable Esprit V8. Yeah. It, it was better than the other two, wasn't it? Yes. It basically didn't go wrong at all. Didn't go wrong at all, and it worked remarkably well off-road because of weight distribution and polar inertia and so on, I'm sure. But, yeah. But, but also, I mean, my Maserati didn't... I know it started to sort of creak a bit towards the end, but it didn't really go It, it wasn't wrong. creaking at the beginning. I can remember the Grand well, Cabrios were the rattliest things imaginable. Yeah, they, they are a bit... They're a bit floppy. Yeah. But it, it had relaxed a bit more by oh, the end. Okay, it relaxed it into itself. Yes, but it didn't break down as far as I remember, and it didn't actually fall apart... Part of that is because I I do try to be careful with things because I hate wrecking stuff. Yeah, it makes me feel really bad. Um, mm. So I'm, you know, I like to think I have a reasonable amount of mechanical sympathy because I understand this stuff and I like it. But even so, yes, a Maserati crossing a desert, <laughs> or a Lotus Esprit crossing a swamp, 
yeah. is, yeah, it's quite something. It's almost asking for trouble, isn't it, really? It's almost as if we want it to go no. wrong, isn't it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> how, how long are you away for on a, on, on a job like that? And you must, you, given how much you've done it, I mean, Dan and I have done it a bit, but nothing like your league. You must be quite good at being away and not mind it. Yeah. Um, so a, t- a typical ground tour special will take, say, three weeks of filming. Yeah. And it's pretty intense. I mean, we tend to have quite long days. Yeah. But, I mean, we are quite well looked after. Yes. Mm. Um, be- be- I mean, partly because they've spent a lot of money on us, I suppose. So yeah. <laughs> even, <laughs> even in the middle of Mauritania, you're still quite well looked yes, after. Yes, and we have a big crew now and, and you know, our camp... The, quality of our campsite is pretty good yeah um so it's not that hard to be away i mean it's it is i I I hate saying it's hard work because i know a lot of people will be saying well you're just basically on holiday and getting paid for it and in a sense that is true but it's quite an intense holiday it it looks it i mean you know we we get up early and go to bed late and you know we get shaken to bits and half burnt to death and clogged with dust and so on but it's 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 not It's not that difficult. Yeah. It's not like backpacking. (laughs) Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mm. So we'll we'll move it on from Top Gear and Grand Tour in just a moment, but just one last thing that I wanted to ask. I'm, I'm so impressed at the appetite that the three of you still have for doing risky things in cars. Do, but do they mm. feel risky? To you, I'm thinking. I don't want to give anything away for people who haven't watched this episode yet. But Clarkson being craned down a mountainside is that actually not a terribly risky thing to do? Because you you watch it and think, goodness me, that's brave. Well, it's it would certainly be disconcerting. Mm. Um, is it? I mean, we we are quite careful sure. with stuff, but there, there's quite a there are quite a few things we do that we haven't really done before, or in many cases, nobody's really done mm. before. I remember when we did our, I mean, this was going back to the Top Gear days now, but when we did our beach buggy thing, I still have that beach yeah. buggy because I became very attached to it. But at the end, if you remember, we had an elaborate, I mean, we started off calling it a zip wire, but it actually turned into something more like a cable car mm. that took the, the buggies the last, it was about half a mile or so from the top of the mountain down to the beach. And I, I, I did that one first. And, I, and obviously it had been put together and all calculated very carefully, but I got <clears> in the car... 
just as they were about to set it going. And they said, nobody's actually done this in the car yet. And I said, what, are you kidding? He said, no, we've sent some sort of big bag, bags of sand yeah. and bottles of water down to represent it, but nobody's actually sat in the car. And it set off, and it was quite a long way down, and I don't like heights. Yeah. And I thought, oh, God, this is a bit stupid. But then after a while I thought, do you know what? I can just feel that this is going to work perfectly wow. well. Wow. It was actually quite a nice ride in the end because it went along quite slowly. It was a bit like being in the Alps except without the snow mm. and the skiers and the, and the beer at the other end. <laughs> we know, don't we, where, whatever it is and wherever you go, there is only one more grand tour yes. big to come. And that, for you, will end an era of, what, it must have been 25 years almost? Not far off, yeah. yeah. Working with those two. And I know, obviously, as all people do in working relationships, particularly when they're very different people, you've had um, you've had differences. And I know that people sort of think that you all must be best buddies back home. And in fact, when you're working together you know, for that long period of time, it's probably not the first thing that you want to do when you when you start working. But nevertheless, for you, for that to come to an end must be quite something. And I just wonder what thoughts that you have or are you are you a sort of person who can just you know close the book and move on and not look back, or do you think you will just think? Well, I, th- I mean, I can't believe that's over. I think I can move on, and I always said, I mean, when we first when I was first asked onto Top Gear, I thought, oh, this is going to be a bit of a laugh. This is going to be really interesting and quite challenging, and if we're lucky, it might last for a few years. Yeah. And here we are, over two decades later. But in all that time, I always said, if it ends suddenly, I w- I should be grateful for what we had, absolutely, and not lament it. So I think I can close it and move on. And it probably is, you know, we're getting on a bit, um, and we have thrashed the idea quite thoroughly yes. over those twenty years. So, so I think. We've always talked about the difficulty, not just for our show, but for all long-running TV shows, of, as we put it, landing it successfully and not flying it into a cliff. Yeah. Mm. So I think we're at that point where we've just, you know, the engine's failed, but we've seen the field and we've put it down without trying to do anything too clever for too long. Yeah. We haven't tried to stretch the glide, as they say, <laughs> in aviation. So it's pro- it's probably the right thing. I think there is room... There is no sort of mainstream car tv at the moment it's extraordinary isn't it it is very i mean that must be for the first time in many many decades yeah uh, despite being at one of them whether you like you know evs or not at one of them probably the most interesting time it is for the, the automotive industry time. certainly yeah. since you and i got into it definitely probably the most interesting point in the car's history since the car was invented yeah I think. and yet there is Nothing. No, no one to address it. On mainstream. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are YouTubers and there, there, there are, are some great YouTubers. And there, there are some websites like ours and that sort of thing. But, you know, when you sit down of an evening in front of the haunted fish tank, there's nothing on. Not about cars, no. no. And I think, I mean, one of the reasons that we should stop is that our way of doing it is probably becoming quite old fashioned. Yeah. And it would be a bit of a wrench for us to reinvent it, even if we were able to. But somebody somewhere, a creative and imaginative person or people, will be able to think of a new mm. way of tackling the subject of cars or maybe transport in general, personal transport in general. I don't know. But there must be a way of doing it. It cannot possibly be a dead subject because, as you say, it is it is alive with speculation, controversy. Yeah. I don't know how, how long also... we've been talking, but we, you know, we could talk about EVs, the supposed autonomous car, the hydrogen bicycles, road rules, speed limit. There's tons and tons yeah. of stuff we can talk about just here. And they also, they play 
an incredibly important role in people's lives. Very. And it can't just go unrecognised. And I find it incredible. I mean, I know that, you know, what happened with, with Top Gear, I mean, that clearly wasn't um, intended to happen. That wasn't designed to come to an end when it did. Um, but even so, sitting here in, what are we, February 2024, with no car television programmes on mainstream yeah. telly. It's incredible. I think it is incredible. And I don't think it will stay that way. No. I think it would be very odd. Shall we... Let's talk about cars. Shall we talk about I cars? I've been sort of been talking about myself, which I find <laughs> slightly cringy. Well, you are the guest. Um, but, okay, I'll meet you in the middle and we'll talk about your cars. Okay, that's good. I know something about my cars. Yes. But... <laughs> so, I, um, you've turned up in a Volkswagen Polo today. Yes. Uh, One litre base model. Yes. There you go. Is that what people would have expected? Maybe. I think they probably would. Well, a Polo or a Panda, I think. Yeah, I've still well. got the Panda. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, um, we were talking about this, well, we were talking about this earlier, Andrew, before we, before we switched on. But w- one of the things I've realised about my, my interest in cars is that for years, um, I've banged on, and I know you've talked about this a lot as well, about the idea that, you know, driving is a, is an experience. It's a performative act, and it's it's. I hate the word, but it's experiential, and it's not actually about things like performance or cost or anything like that. No. I think cars are about the the, the tactile and the visceral yes. experience of actually controlling the thing. And then there's a whole level of things that are to do with aesthetics and and color and and smell and all that sort of thing. And I've always argued that small, relatively simple cars are actually more fun more of the time. Yes. Oh, and, yes. And we I, say this a lot, don't we? Yeah. We say this all well, the time. It is undoubtedly true. Yeah. yeah. And I still think that. And then I think, well, why don't I have a collection of sort of people's cars? You, you still have a 2CV, don't you? I still have a 2CV. I have an old Fiat 500. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. Both of those are cars that I should have. Yeah. Brilliant. I do have a Mini now. Mm. Um, an original, 90, well, uh, an Isagonis Mini. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because it's... And that's why... I like the one-litre polo. It's not exciting. I mean, it's a boring car mm. by most people's standards, but it's and it's only the base model, but it's fabulously well-equipped. It's very, very pleasant and low-stress to use. It's got one or two slightly annoying features, but it even rides quite well, yeah. and it's incredibly well-equipped. It's the base model, mm. and it's, it uses, you know, a whiff of fuel, um, and it's just it's, it's an incredibly effective thing. Is that the car you would normally use to get about here and there? I either use that or the Panda or or my Tesla, mm. um, which I, I've, I've got the new Model 3, the, the so-called Highland. I've only had it a few weeks. And I, I'm, I'm still conflicted about electric cars. I've had six now. Two of them were hydrogen fuel cell Toyotas before the whole hydrogen infrastructure thing fell apart. Yeah. Uh, but they're essentially electric cars you know, driven by an electric motor. But with BEVs, there's a lot I like about them. I like the the silence. Mm. I mean, it feels like magic and Star Trek to me because I'm of a certain age. I like that they're polite. I can leave my little country hobbit cottage at four in the morning without disturbing even a a worm. It's it's fantastic. But I still think the ambition is way ahead of the battery technology. It's still not really good enough. Mm. Even um, even with the Tesla, where you have the supercharger network and yeah, but there still aren't enough of them. Yeah, and there's and it still takes too long. I, I, I argue with this with people, um, both sides, because you get the anti EV oh people who are simply anti EV because they're 
defensive about something. And then you get the ridiculous EV evangelists who say, oh, you know, I'm quite happy to stop driving after 250 miles an hour. And by the time I've had a waz and eaten my burger, my car's charged. And I think, rubbish. <laughs> what you're claiming is that the exhaustion of your range, your hunger and an available charger yes. coincide. All coincide yeah. precisely. And they don't. You actually, if you, if you drive all around the country, you end up navigating between high-speed chargers yeah. and hoping there aren't too many people on them. My back of an envelope calculation, and I'm not good at mathematical modelling or anything, but I think if if we go ahead with the 2035 date and so on, and the car fleet, the national car fleet is replaced at roughly the rate it is now, in another 15 years or so, about 75, 80% of the car fleet, assuming everything else stays the same, will be electric. And if it's still at current technology, i.e. it's it BEVs, we're going to need millions of charging points. It's not tens or hundreds of yeah. thousands. It's yeah. millions. Yeah. And you cannot get around the problem of even a quick charge taking 15 or 20 minutes. Because the, the other argument I have with people is, well, I say argument, debate, usually happens online somewhere. They say, oh, well, you never have to fill it with petrol. And then anyway, by the time you filled it with petrol and added wee and bought a packet of fruit pastels, you might as well have charged your car. And I say, no, I'm, I'm actually boring enough to have timed this and I do stop even in my 911, which has a famously large petrol tank, yeah. and fill it up and go and pay and get back in the car. And it can just be three minutes. Yeah. Three minutes is a long time. Yeah. And, 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 it, I, and I think what you were talking about, about you know your journey being the business of navigating between fast chargers. When I've been doing those journeys in electric cars, however big the battery is, however long the range is, and so on and so forth, unless I know... I can get to where I'm going and I can charge it there without thinking about it. It's there. It's in your mind. Yeah, it is. It's, it's kind of right there in your mind. It's a potential breakdown. Yeah. And what that means is it sucks up all the space for all the other things you much, much prefer to be in your mind. And that interferes with your enjoyment and your relaxation of the journey. And I resent that. I, I don't want to be driving down wherever it is I'm going, thinking, okay, well, I've got this many miles to airplane, and that's going to take me this long, as long as they're all working, as long as I'm breaking down, as long as there isn't a queue, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And it's just there. And, it's, and, and even if everything works out just fine, no problem at all, and you get to where you're going pretty much when you would have done, um, you can't get it out of your mind. No, I agree. And I, I, I have written this in an article I did for, the, for one of the newspapers last year, but I'm... I'm a, a bad ambassador for the electric car, really, because... Because you are seen to be quite, uh, well, not evangelical on the subject, but you're, you are seen to be um, very sort of pro, EV. I, I, am, I am pretty pro. I think we've yeah. known, you know, since the beginning of the 20th century that electric motors are the sensible way to power a car because, I mean, in, internal combustion is fascinating, like clockwork is, and it's full of flaws, and that's what gives it mechanical character, and that's why we love it, and you have to manage it, and you have to have a gearbox, blah, blah, all this yeah. stuff. It's all great. It's very exciting. But in terms of common sense, the yeah. electric motor, low-maintenance, quiet, smell-free, no reciprocating parts, makes more sense. The, the electricity storage, electricity storage has always been a problem. Mm. Um, and I've come, what was the actual point I was going to make? Yes, uh, is that what, what people call range anxiety i actually think is recharging anxiety because yeah. if an electric car had a small battery which would save weight which is important very um, and save a lot of money because yeah. the battery is the expensive bit mm. 
so it has a small battery. It's only got a range of, say, 150 miles, but it recharges in one minute. I'd be delighted with that. And there are lots of charges. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, the reason we have cars, you know, like my outgoing Tesla, which was the Model S, bloody huge thing uh, that weighs slightly more than a Rolls-Royce Silver Shadow, which is a car from the 60s yes. and, and is a much more lavishly appointed thing. Uh, is because of that massive battery. It has to have the massive battery because it's an acknowledgement that charging is an issue. Mm. Mm. And even with massive batteries, the range of electric cars is not that impressive. No. Mm. Not, comp- not compared with my Polo, which will do easily 450 miles mm. on the tank. Mm. And, you know, on Top Gear, we had an Audi that was driven for over 1,000 miles. It was a diesel on one tank. Yeah. And it still recharges, i.e. refills. Yeah. In a matter of minutes, and and anywhere, and anywhere, yeah. Um, so it's uh, it, it's a I, I like being part of the experiment, yes. and I th- I feel an obligation as a car enthusiast to do my bit. But, but I'm a, I'm a, sorry, I was I've, go on. I'm, a, I'm on a bit of a roll. <laughs> go on. But I'm a bad. People like me are bad evangelists for the electric car because I have two homes. This is going to sound very first worldy, I know, but I've got two homes, and that's my most regular journey between those. And you can charge at both. I can charge at both indoors. Yeah. They've both got garages. They're only a hundred miles apart. Yeah. I've got numerous other cars to use if I yeah. need to go so, somewhere else. So they're else. perfect for you. Yeah, they are. Because when they're not fine. perfect, you take something else. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. But that doesn't mean they are ready for widespread adoption yet. Can I ask you this? You talked about as a car enthusiast. Do you think there will ever be collectible? electric cars you know you, you and i have a particular thing for mechanical watches yes we love them they're fantastic things just to cart around on your wrist and i've said on this podcast before and i've gotten a bit of trouble for it in the past but you know i don't think that there are many if any collectible digital watches despite not, the not fact many that, not many no. despite the fact that they've been around for almost half a century now um and you know, it's a, so is there something about a machine, something that is designed with moving metal parts and all and everything else, which just sort of resonates with us in the way that something that is powered by a motor not dissimilar to that, which powers your refrigerator, um, is never going to be able to I think, yes. replicate? Well, I think yes and no. Now, with the, the thing about, yes, the fascination with mechanical things is because, as we were saying just now, unless you've edited it out... <laughs> <laughs> is that mechanical things have character. Yeah. And this is something I thought about the other day, is that the, the attainment of performance in, a say, a petrol engine car is gives it a very distinct character. So, you know, we talk about high-revving Ferrari engines and the need to develop more absolute power and, you know, whether you have a cross-plane crank or a flat-plane crank and the effect that has on the vibrations you feel in your pelvis, all these things that, that affect how you achieve performance. Yeah. In an electric car, you simply fit a bigger version of something with an absolutely uniform personality, which is an electric motor. Mm. So it suddenly becomes a fast electric car. It sort of becomes a bit meaningless because there's no... There's no quality, is there? No, there's no no quality, and it doesn't feel like an achievement. But whether or not they will be collectible... So I think we like certain cars because of mechanical character. Yes. um, Which is largely down to the engine, but it can also be a bit about suspension and gearboxes and things yeah. like that. But a lot of people like particular cars, and, and particularly old cars, which have been through the you know the filter of time, for aesthetic reasons. A lot of people say, oh, I would love a uh, Ferrari Dino. 
say, or an E-type Jag or a Jensen Interceptor, mm. because they love the shape and what it stands for yeah. and what it says, they've probably never driven one. And if they did, I mean, I remember when I, the first time I drove a Ferrari Daytona, the, the disconnect between how I imagined it would yeah. feel and what it was actually like was, mm. was shocking. And, um, I, and I guess a really good example of that is something like a Citroen DS, um, which were never great cars to drive. They never, they didn't have particularly distinguished, remotely distinguished engines in them. But no, they were underpowered, of, really. Yeah, they? exactly. But because of the way they looked, and because I guess because of the comfort and everything else, they became these. I don't think icon is too, is too strong a word in design terms. So maybe that. So maybe that's the way it's going to go, and the engineering will become less important. I think maybe we're already seeing this now. The, uh, en- the engineering is going to become very uniform yeah. mm. in the same way that it is with, say, kettles. There, there is a way to make a kettle, and everybody does it pretty much the same way, but they make them look very different. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So you mentioned that you've had a couple of Toyota Mirais. Yes. <clears throat> so hydrogen fuel cell cars. Yes. You don't have them anymore. What, no. Was there a time where you thought, this is it, this is the solution? I th- well, I wasn't, I wasn't entirely convinced, but again, because I was in a fortunate position, I thought... Right, there is this big experiment going on with how we power our, our cars. Yeah. There's this BEV argument, which is obviously winning, but there's the hydrogen fuel cell one, and they've been around a long time. Um, I, I can have both, and I can compare. And most most recently, the two I had at the same time were the um, Model S Tesla mm. and the new Mirai, which you've driven, actually, yes. Frank, at that time. And it's... I, I'm aware of all the arguments about the inefficiency of, of compressing hydrogen and, and you know mm. energy transfer and so on, but it's a fascinating bit of tech. It's one of those things. It's it's a, it's a little bit like your mechanical watch thing. You don't necessarily look through the the glass back at the movement, but you contemplate it and you think that thing is going ticker 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 on my wrist and yeah. it's it's translating the movement of my arm into a regular beat that keeps time. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, you know, it's very it, clever. It's mm. very poetic. Yeah. And there was something a bit like that about the hydrogen fuel cell car as you drove along thinking how this is actually working. I thought your, I was very taken with that with, with your Mirai. I thought it was, a, to drive, it was a wonderful, wonderful car. Wonderful thing. Very, very limousine-like, supremely refined and, yeah. and, mm. and extremely meticulously but, but there, made. But there, and there's, to me, and I know... And it saddens me to hear that Toyota seem to be moving away from it now. But to me, I, I think you'll know what I mean, there's an essential rightness to the way that that car is designed and the technology that it contains. And I still believe, despite everything, that ultimately that's where we're going to end up. Yes, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, we, if we're really going to decarbonise or whatever else we're going to call it, the whole the whole spectrum of transport, we can't put big lithium-ion batteries in airlines. No, exactly. Um, so combustible hydrogen, alternative uh, synthetic fuels or fuel cell electric motor things with, with much better storage of the hydrogen. I mean, there's been a great deal of work in effect on the battery electric vehicle because the battery technology has been spurred by things like laptops and mobiles originally mm. and, yeah. and, you know, some rechargeable garden machinery and so on. And, of course, the basic infrastructure requirement, a grid, is already in place. So that gives it a huge head start. Yes. But uh, I don't know, if, if an equivalent amount of work could be done on hydrogen, and I know people are still working on it, but it's, it's been slightly kicked in the nuts by the disappearance of all the filling stations that were available to cars. Now, I, I, I do firmly believe, and I think most of the people in the hydrogen society or community or whatever we call them would agree with me here, is the hydrogen fuel cell is not a route to cleaning up the car 
it's a route cleaning up the whole world that the car can ride on, can piggyback mm. on. Yeah. But it really needs to start with things like bus fleets, lorries, mm. shipping. Shipping, mm. yeah. shipping, yeah. But we're in a bit of a vicious circle or, or a descending well, I mean, spiral of... of but everybody has, I mean, the, the EV juggernaut... Um, which, and it's not just, you know, manufacturers, it's governments have all jumped on board. You can't stop it now. Very difficult. But it increasing, we always didn't, we always talk of, used to talk of hybrids as a bridging technology. It was the bridge between yes. the internal combustion engine and the EV. To me, increasingly, EVs are looking like another bridging technology. Yeah. Because what we, what we know has to be the answer isn't available to us yet. And I think hydrogen has to be the answer. It's the most abundant element in the world, and you combine it with oxygen, and you get energy and water. Yes, that's but it, it is bloody difficult to manage. Mm. Yes, but you've simplified it slightly. Yes, it. but as you said, if you had, if people had invested the same amount of time and money in doing that with hydrogen that has already been spent in developing, you know, cars with lithium batteries, which are so problematic in their weight, in their use of, um, you know, materials, in the yep. like, you know, everything, else, all the problems that we that, that we know about that. If the same amount of thought had gone into hydrogen, I just wonder where we'd be now, and I just wonder whether there aren't people who are thinking, well. If we knew then what we know now, we wouldn't be doing this, but we are doing this, so we better get on with it. Yes, I, I, I think it's still worth pursuing. It's for the moment I've had to you know, admit defeat and give up on the Mirai because there's only one place I could fill it, yes. which was very mm. inconveniently situated and wasn't always working. And it just, it no longer worked. When there were a few more stations around, I could use it as my car a lot of the time. Um, but it's interesting what you were saying about hybrids being seen as a bridge. See, I believe when Toyota started working on what became the Prius, which was in, I think, 1968. Wow. They were very far-sighted about this. Yeah. They liked the idea of an electric motor in a car, but realised that they couldn't put it in by itself because at that time they would have had lead-acid batteries mm. and have had milk float technology. So they combined it with the engine and came up with this, you know, we fill the holes in the efficiency of the petrol engine, in effect, with the electric system and so on. But it did prepare us for that. And then you might be right that the EV is now a sort of, it's a psychological bridge to the idea of driving around in silent, yes. supposedly characterless yes. cars. Yes. But that, and that will come from an yeah. electric motor, probably. But, but it may not come, the power may not come from a battery. Sure. And when... The world has, you know, when, when when the young people, people being born out, you know, who by the time they get their driving license, EVs are all there. They, they won't have anything to miss because they would never have known what it was like to begin with. And so it'll be completely second nature to them. Yes. And I think in that sort of time scale, um, you know, I don't see that, I mean, that there may be, you know, the wondrous breakthrough of battery, battery technology. Somebody may master productionizing solid state and all these sorts of things that we hear about. But unless that happens... Um, I think the time will come when people will look again at it. I think they will. And, of course, we don't have to settle on one. It's not quite like Bismarck no. versus VHS. We can have some battery cars and some hydrogen and some running on synthetic fuels or antimatter or but, whatever but is else. That, is that yeah. the way the world works? You know, because, of course, we all know that we were here at the end of the 19th century, weren't we, when there was steam and there was electric and there was petrol. And mm. petrol was problematic because it was dangerous and it was dirty and it was... You difficult know, to get a hold of. Difficult <laughs> to get a hold of over there. And yet uh, electricity and steam went nowhere and one won through. And I can't help thinking that ultimately we're going to... We are... There will be alternatives, but ultimately people just tend to think, well, that's the right horse, so we're going to back that. Don't know. 
Yes, you may be right, but we may have become more enlightened as a result oh, of the example that, you've just quoted. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Um, it is. It, sorry, I've, this is something I've ranted on. on about television. I, I can see you looking at your watch, and people often do that when I'm talking. No, but, it's not <laughs> that. I just know that we've only got a certain amount of time, and I just want to run up while we're still in the middle of something. The, the thing that I find interesting about internal combustion, and I'm, I'm going to talk about the whole of the Industrial Revolution and everything, but very briefly, is that... It's an incredibly complicated thing. You've got pistons going up and down, then you've got a camshaft going round and round and possibly push rods going up and down as well and springs being incompressed and valves going up and down and then gears going round. It's always got... But all you actually get out of it... Look at one of those cutaway diagrams oh, of yes. a modern engine. You think, bloody Nora, look at all that stuff going mm. on. But what you get is a shaft spinning round mm. and round. Yeah. Same as the bottom bracket of a bicycle, same as a windmill, same as a water wheel, same as a capstan and windlass on a ship. That's all you need to yeah. empower the world. Yeah. And the electric motor is such an elegant way of doing it yes. that mm. it's always made sense. And it is, it is weird that we have refined, and it's not over, I, I don't believe it's over by a long way, refined the, the piston engine from a thing that went dunk, 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 dunk with a hot tube <laughs> you know, ignition system. Yes. So these incredibly sophisticated ones combined with electric motors to make hybrids, and, and you know, they're so beautifully thought out. And yet all they're really doing is giving you mm. something spinning a, going spinning a round shaft. and round. That's yeah. all it is. Yes, and you can do that with your legs if you like. Yeah, um, it's amazing. Chaps, we are, we are running out of time. That was a very grown-up discussion. It was a bit, wasn't it? So, have you, have you still got the Ferrari? Uh, I still have the 458 Speciale. Good-o. I was having a bit, <laughs> bit of a flirt with the 360, which I like, mainly yes. because it was in blue nart, which I think is a nice colour. But then I listened mm. to you two dissing it. That was him. Very recently. That was me. Yeah. <laughs> So, so that's sort of slightly, not that that should put me off, obviously, but uh, but it did. Do you get to use the 458 Speciale often? No. Mm. No. Uh, I actually haven't driven it for several months. For it's been winter. It's, it's been, winter. been winter, yes. It's also, to be honest, it's, I mean, I love it because, and I also heard what you said about the regular Italia being essentially a better car, and you are right because I had one of those previously. Yes. And I was going to chop that in for a 488 GTB, which I know you said was the greatest road Ferrari ever, and I think you might be right about that. Well, not quite that. Might not quite that, but it's a bloody fine car. It was a fantastic car, yeah. yes. And I went on the launch of it. And I was persuaded to have the Speciale because they, they reckoned they could get one more in. The order book was essentially closed, but they said, I bet they could just you, Mr. One May. For you, my friend, yes. yes. And I don't know if mine is actually was actually the last one down the line. Uh-huh. It would depend on the chassis oh. number, but they won't release that. I've asked them, I said, have I actually got the last one? Because I have, mm. that could be quite Keep interesting. Yeah. Yeah, but they won't tell me. Right. But anyway, th- that's how I ended up with it. And, it. and it's orange, and it's got gold wheels and a big stripe. <laughs> and it's a bit embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, it's very honest, but, but, um, but I love it, because it's just it's silly. Yeah, um, and it should be. Yeah, so... Um, and, and I do have a met, uh, red metal flake beach buggy, so I can't really be mm. that embar- embarrassed about an orange Ferrari. And, 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 and of course, you have a 911 too. Of course I do, yes. You once told me, oh God. And, and, and you were right, uh, that the one thing everybody always regrets selling is a 911. Correct. Yeah, that is that, I, that, that is one of the few sensible things. That, yeah, and I did nearly sell it last year, and then I had a moment. I'd, I'd done a deal with a woman who was very interested in it. And, and she was also the sort of person I wanted my 911 to go to, if you know what right I mean. Right sort of home. Yes. And then right at the last minute, I had to ring her up and say, I'm really sorry, but I can't do it. I just, <laughs> you can't do you think go. she secretly thought you just had a better offer somewhere else? No, no, because I know her. She's the sister of a good friend of mine, uh, so okay. she knows I still, yes. I still have it. Okay. But, it, but I... And it's also Sarah's favourite of all my cars, even though she hardly ever goes in it. She thinks you, one should have a 911, you know, is that... <laughs> 
It's that sort of thing. And, I, and I'm conflicted because I wrote about this a few years ago. Some days, I think, the 9-11, for all the reasons we've heard many times, you know, it's robust, it's bulletproof, it's actually usable every day, it's a proper car, but it's also exciting. It has character and it has pedigree and all those things. And other days, I get it and I think... How bloody boring is a 911, for God's sake? <laughs> no. It's so dumb. I've never had that. Yeah, I have. I, I'm, I'm really I, I, fascinated. And I've, I've driven, like you, I've driven so many of them. Over the, I'm, unless it's something which is not my kind of 911. So it's, a, you know, Tiptronic four-wheel drive, Cabriolet, whatever, because, you know, I, I've always been one of these tedious 911 balls who bang on about less is more and so on and so forth. I've never had that. I've never gotten into a 911 and thought, oh, well, this is... I love... The fact they do their job so well and so, so relatively anonymously because there's people see them all the time. I can remember mm. I had a BMW i8 as a long term for a bit, which is a fine, fine car, but the attention it got just drove me up the wall. And that was replaced by a 911. I became invisible again. Yeah. It was just another car. I loved that. Probably what I like most about it. Yeah, they are just cars. They are mm. just cars. Yeah, but yeah. very good ones. So, mm. so I'll keep it. It's, I mean, it's still, I don't. I've got too many cars, I'd be the first to admit it, and I don't drive that much these days. And my 911 I've had since new, and I bought it in 2010, so it'll be 14 in the autumn of this year, and it's just past 30,000 miles. My Speciali's done 6,000. My Alpine's done about six or 7,000. And your Panda? 130,000. Oh, there you go. That says everything, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Well, gentlemen. Yes, everything's got low mileage. Anyway. <laughs> um, James, I'm so glad you could be here for our 200th episode. No, it's, it's, a, it's a great honour. It's, it's, I really like it. It's talking about cars with people who are just honestly and unashamedly interested in them is actually very refreshing. Well, it's been a pleasure having you here. Thank you so Perhaps much. Perhaps we could do it. I, I sort of feel we, we, we barely scratched, scratched the surface of what we could talk about. In, well, know. we haven't talked about the self-driving car, which is something oh, I quite like to rant about. Yeah. Um, we haven't talked about cyclists. Uh, what was something else that came into my head just now that we haven't talked about? I thought, well, surely we should talk about that. SUVs, yeah. the rise of SUVs think, from luxury manufacturers. I think he's inviting himself back on. Well, I think you and I need to have a conversation about that, well, first, you, don't we? Yes, I'll, I'll leave the room. <laughs> and we can decide issues. between us. Anytime, yeah. James, anytime. Um, yeah, seriously, James, thank you so much for no, thank spending you. the time to come down to our, um, our little room in Bristol. Been great, um, very nice studio as well. I know, I know you're very proud of it, and we also are. slightly nervous, but it, yeah. it's it's terrific. Excellent. Well, thank you, James, and to everybody listening, everybody watching. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Just remember to subscribe, whether you're watching on YouTube or you're just listening on a podcast app. Hit the little follow button or the subscribe button. That helps a lot. Um, and make sure you come back next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 